several months ago, and Scott asked me to consider teaching for a couple of weeks, and said he really wanted to spend um, the the two weeks going through uh, one of the Old Testament one of the minor prophets. And when he told me that, I immediately thought about Jonah. I didn't ever recall teaching through Jonah before. Uh, I've gone back and looked, and I never have. I've studied through it, but I've never taught through it. So I was immediately drawn to that book. But then I thought, man, four chapters? How am I going to do that in two weeks? Because some of you may have been around me a while to know that when I teach, I like to teach one word at a time, and sometimes a letter of a word at a time. And I thought, man, how can I do this in two weeks? And then Scott explained to me there's a, there's a different methodology in teaching exegetically through a book. And so we talked about that, and I've, I've prayed through that, and so I'm going to attempt over the next two weeks to cover these four chapters, and we'll trust God, the Holy Spirit, to do justice to this word. It's not me, but, but we know it's God. Um, but i got to tell you, my study time last week for the book of Jonah was especially sweet, because every morning I'd get up around 5 o'clock, and I would, I would slip outside, and I would I'd walk down the sidewalk, and I'd go down this little pathway to, they call it a folly deck, that was about 10 feet above the ocean, and I would lay down in a hammock, and I would swing gently in the breeze with my laptop, and I got to tell you, the, the waters off of Honduras, the island of Calos Cochinos, is just an incredible place to study the book of Jonah. Um, so... I had a great study time. Uh, and then I came back to Greenville to a jungle of a yard. I did not know we'd gotten about six inches of rain the week before. and so. But anyway, that, that's where I spent my study time. So it, it was an especially sweet time with God. Now, Jonah is a story of a man who is given two different commissions at two different times in his life. And it was the same commission. I'm going to attempt to cover the first commission tonight, and then next week we'll look at the second commission. But first of all, I think we really need to ask the question that very early believers asked, and the question is still being asked by some Bible scholars today, and that is, is Jonah a, histor a historical book, or is it the figment of somebody's imagination, or is it, is it an allegorical story, like John... Um, I just went blank. John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress is an allegorical story. The truth is embedded in a fictional story. So we need to ask ourselves, is Jonah that, or is it a historical book? But I think we can see through the Scripture facts that the story of Jonah being historical is not, it's not a work of fiction, it's not an allegory, it's not somebody's imagination. It is factual. First of all, there is nothing in the book of Jonah itself that suggests, <clears throat> pardon me, that it is anything other than a historical account of these events in Jonah's life. Secondly, church tradition, old church tradition, holds that the book of Jonah is historically accurate. Thirdly, there is Old Testament evidence pointing to the accuracy of this book. David, Josiah, and Hezekiah were without doubt kings of, of God's people. And it's in the, the historical records of those kings' reign that Jonah's story is, is, is recorded. Speaking of Jeroboam, 2 Kings 14.25 states, 
He is the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebo Hamath to the Sea of Arabah. In accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel spoken through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath Hefer. So if Jeroboam was a real person, and if Israel was a real nation, and if Hamath was a real place, it's unlikely that Jonah would be somebody's imagination. But most importantly, Jesus himself implied that the facts, the story of the things that took place in Jonah's life were actual events. By the way, he referred to them in Matthew 12, verses 29 through 41. Matthew 12, 29 through 41, Jesus answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. So if Jesus said that Jonah was a real person, and that Jonah was three days in the belly of a huge fish, and if Jesus said that the people of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah, that's all the proof I need. Okay, so, the one thing that struck me though this last week was I was thinking about it, and this is, this is a cool connection for me, whether it is for y'all or not, I don't know, but it was for me. But the resurrected Jesus and Jonah were connected by Jesus prior to his crucifixion. We, we see, we'll see that Jonah is a Christ type. And then the resurrected Jesus and Jonah were connected by Jesus speaking about Jonah. I thought that was cool. Now, let's turn to Jonah. We're going to read the first two chapters. <clears throat> Chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. For their evil has come before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And Jonah said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is it that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, 
then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All of your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me up, you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you. Into your holy temple, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will repay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. I want to go back and start taking this apart a little bit and looking at some things. So Jonah's first commission, go to the city of Nineveh, call out against them because their sin is great. Why Nineveh? What was it about Nineveh that their evil was so great that it was calling out and God said they need to change? What was it about Nineveh that was so bad? Scott, what's the rule? How long do I wait before I answer? <laughs> okay. Any ideas? What was, the, what, what was the name of the capital of? Assyria. Ah, the Assyrians were tremendously evil, mean-spirited, hateful, horrible, cruel people. For example, their policy was never to keep captives alive. When they went in and conquered a city, they didn't take prisoners. They killed everybody. But they did it with a relish that... I can't even imagine. For example, they would hold someone down and the torturer would take tongs, put them in the mouth, grab hold of the tongue, and would pull until the tongue was ripped out of their throat. And they were alive when this was going on. They would, they would flay people with whips until they died, or they would skin them alive. And they would take strips of skin off, and while the people were there screaming about their skin being stripped off, they would hang their skin up on the walls. Every city that they conquered, 
they would build a pyramid of, of the human skulls of the people that they conquered. They'd kill them, they'd behead them, and they'd build pyramids of the skulls. Bodies were strewn everywhere. Okay. Nahum expressed, expressed a woe to Nineveh in Nahum chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, and then in verse 19. <clears throat> in chapter 3, he says, Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims, the crack of whips, the clatter of wheels, galloping horses and jolting chariots, charging cavalry, flashing swords and glittering spears, many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over the corpses, all because of the wanton lust of a harlot alluring the mistress of sorceries who enslaved nations by her prostitution and peoples by her witchcraft. Then verse 19 says, Nothing can heal your wound. Your injury is fatal. Everyone who hears the news about you claps his hands at our fall for who has not felt your endless cruelty. Now, Nahum was written around 664 to 612 B.C. Jonah was written close to 200 years before that. So, in the time of Jonah, Israel really wasn't under a direct threat of Assyria because they had two battles going with other people. But their cruelty was still widely known and the things that they did. Um, so, God sent Jonah to Nineveh. That was his call. But think about Jonah's call in a little bit different context. Now, there's not anybody here that was, well, yeah, there is. There's one person, but I'm going to call her name. That was alive in 1942. Um, but we know, we know what it was going on in 1942. You know, World War II was going on. Adolf Hitler was doing the atrocities against the Jewish people. But think about Think about Jonah's call like this. If God called a Jewish rabbi from New York City and told him, get on a boat, go to Berlin, Germany, make an appointment with Adolf Hitler, tell him that his sin is great, but it'll be forgiven if he repents. What do you think that Jewish rabbi would do? Probably would go down to New York Harbor, buy a ticket on a boat, and go to Japan rather than Berlin, rather than meet the man who's, who was responsible for the murder of millions of Jewish men, women, and children. That's similar to, to where Jonah was in this situation. So, when God called Jonah, what did he do? He ran, you know, in verse 3. We see his response. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, that's, an, that's going to be an important phrase. Jonah chose to go to Tarshish and flee from the presence of the Lord. We'll talk about that again in a minute. What was God's response to Jonah's response? He sent a storm. Why did he send the storm? Huh? Yeah, to get his attention. Yeah, he did. Jonah, in his rebellious and disobedient attitude, 
not wanting a wicked and evil people to experience God's forgiveness and all of that, Jonah still remained God's man for the job. In verses 4 and 5, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God. They hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them so that they wouldn't perish. But Jonah went down into the inner part of the ship and he laid down and what did he do? He went to sleep. Okay. <clears throat> First of all, God drew Jonah back into his plan through a disciplinary action. How many here, sitting here tonight, enjoy discipline? Show of hands. I don't either. Discipline is, it, well, you know, one of my favorite saying is that I don't like pain, pain hurts. Okay, it's pretty simple, but it's true. In Hebrews 12, and, and I know we're, we're going to get to Hebrews 12 at some point. You know, I, I tell Ben every once in a while, you know, maybe in 10 or 15 years, but we're, we're going to get there unless Jesus comes back first and it's going to be okay. But in Hebrews 12, 11, God says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So God sends the winds to discipline Jonah. And there's going to be even more discipline involved that we're going to see a little bit later. But he sends this, and God has the winds in his storehouse. At his command, at his discretion, he can use the winds to accomplish his purpose. In Psalm 135, verse 7, the psalmist says, He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. The wind doesn't just happen by itself. It's part of God's design. And God has that at his beck and call, however he chooses to use Proverbs 30, verse 4 says, Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? What is his son's name? Surely you know. You know rhetorical questions. We know he's talking about God and he's talking about Jesus. So God sent the tempest as a pursuer of Jonah. Jonah's purpose was to flee God. I grew up in West Texas where there is always wind. You can't outrun wind. You, know, I, it, you just can't do it. So God sent the wind to pursue Jonah. And he did that to reclaim him back in the right relationship with the Creator. God can and does use discipline in our lives to reclaim us as well. In verse 4, there are some people who would read when it says um, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. There was a mighty tempest on the, on the sea so that the ship was, in, was threatened to break up. Some people read that as it was only that one ship. Many other ships out on the sea, the tempest was only against that one particular ship. Is that possible? Oh, absolutely. If that's, what if that's what God chose to do. You know, it could have been calm everywhere else and that ship was just turning upside down. You know, God could have done that. I thought about that and I thought, you know, 
Sometimes my sin will impact just me. Many times, though, my sin will impact so many people around me. So it may have just been that one ship. It may have been every ship that was on the sea at that day, on that day that was battling this same tempest because sin is never private. The consequence of sin is never private. It's never just me, myself. It involves others. Whichever way it was, doesn't matter because God's purpose was to get Jonah's attention. In verses 6 through 8, the mariners are so convinced that they were going to be shipwrecked, they begin to cry out to their gods. They were throwing cargo overboard, anything they could do to lighten the load and stay on top of the waves and not perish. Does, does that sound vaguely familiar to what we try to do? Do we ever try to lighten our load? What, what kind of things do we throw away to lighten our load in a storm? Say it again. Yeah, the easiest thing to throw away. Sometimes it's relationships. Sometimes it's relationship with God. We kind of toss that aside and say, well, if I don't have to think about that, then, then, then it's not going to be a problem. We can throw away all kinds of things just to try to stay on top. Did it work? No. Never does. Never will. Um, but I think it's interesting, again, with all of this going on, and the mariners are running around probably going crazy and throwing stuff overboard, and here's Jonah down in the, in, in the bottom of the ship, fast asleep. Sleep is, by the way, another way of running. Have you ever gone to sleep to run away from something? Yeah, it's like, if I'm unconscious, I can't think about it. You know? And so we do that, and sometimes we'll do that just by getting so exhausted that we just can't keep our eyes open anymore, so then we just pass out. Sometimes we use a little chemical assistance, a little Simply Sleep or Tylenol PM or Benadryl or something stronger if we can't sleep, but we sleep to run, and that's what Jonah did. He slept. He's still running away from God. So the mariners went down and woke him up. The captain's like, how dare you sleep? We're dying up here, and you're sleeping. At least call out to your God. Now, in the midst of Jonah running away, being disobedient to God, trying to flee God's presence, it's interesting that Jonah still gives testimony to who God is. He says, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the one true God, the creator of the sea and the dry land. He gives testimony to who God is, even in his disobedience. He can speak truth. God speaks truth through Jonah. So the mariners hear testimony. That's important. They hear about a God that moments before they didn't even know who, they, who existed, it existed, that God existed. They didn't know anything about him. They hear about that. But they try something else. And, you know, they say, well, what can we do? And Jonah says, throw me overboard. Um, interesting to note, Jonah is still not taking any responsibility for anything that's going on. He's already told him he's the reason that this storm is there. Could he have said, 
you know, God, okay, I'll go to Nineveh. Could he have said that? Could have. Did he say that? No. He looked at the manners and said, you know, just kill me. Throw me overboard. Get me out of my misery. You're going to help me run away from God. But the manners didn't do that. First, they tried to row back to shore, and God's tempest came against them even harder. So they were worse off than they were before. So then they cried out to God, and they said, don't let this man's blood be on us. They threw him overboard. And what happened? Immediately there was calm. Immediate calm. As soon as he was overboard, the seas were calm, and the mariners responded appropriately to coming into contact with a holy and just God. What did they do? They sacrificed. They prayed. They made vows. They believed in God. Folks, this is something that God showed me, just illuminated this for me one morning, swinging in the hammock out over the ocean. I, I, I confess, it was, it, was, it was a tough week. Oh, there, there was some neat stuff. I'll tell you about it sometime, not tonight. I barely have enough time to do this. So, um, But thinking about the sovereignty of God, did God know, before Jonah responded, did God know how Jonah would respond? Yeah, everybody do this. Yes. Why then did God choose to use a man like Jonah whom God knew was going to run rather than go to Nineveh. For his glory. And God had chosen a group of mariners on this ship to reveal himself to. And God used Jonah's disobedience and running away to give testimony to the one true God, the creator of the sea and the dry land, and when they threw Jonah overboard and immediately the sea was calm, they had come face to face with the one true God. And they did the appropriate thing. They worshiped. So God used Jonah's disobedient attitude, his self-serving, his self-righteous, I'm keeping God for myself attitude to reach a people group. And we don't know how far it went from there because those mariners went home, told their children, their, their families. Who knows where it went from there? I mean, God knows, we don't. But God used Jonah's disobedience to reach a people group. So it was more than about Nineveh. Jonah just didn't know that. Jonah thought it was his idea to run away. That's part of God's plan. That through that, he would demonstrate his power and he demonstrated his grace. Once again, we see God's grace being poured out in the Old Testament. And again, how, how often as I grew up thinking that, yeah, the Old Testament is a cool story. You know, it's a bunch of cool stories. It's the basis of what I believe, but it's just, oh, it's back there. You know, and until recently, here at Crosspoint, when it's pointed out, 
over and over and over again. And I think it's so sweet. Why, you know, Scott's teaching through Genesis and Exodus and, and we're going through the Old Testament that we see over and over and over again God's grace and God's redemption being, being acted out in the Old Testament. Not just the New Testament thing. God's the same Old Covenant and New Covenant. God's the same. His grace is the same. So we see it acted out here. Sweet. It is sweet. This was not an accidental cool event or a turn of the cosmos. God acted as a compassionate and loving, gracious, merciful God through a stiff-necked, disobedient dude named Jonah. It's what he did. What he did. So Jonah now experiences grace of a different sort. He's been thrown overboard. Near drowning, God provides a great fish. In verse 17 of chapter 1, and, God, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So God's plan from the beginning, he demonstrates his grace through Jonah near drowning, being encased inside the belly of a fish, and a message of repentance and forgiveness was demonstrated to these mariners. Chapter 1. Chapter 2. We see Jonah's response after being in the belly of the fish for three days. Because it says in verse 2, then Jonah prayed. Right before that, it says he was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Then he prayed. So it took Jonah three days to be in that mucus bag. And Kendra told me last night, I was going through this with his, she was like, Morris, we're going to have people throwing up. So if you've got a weak constitution, just plug your ears here in a minute. I'll tell you when. Um, but it took three days for Jonah to finally cry out to God, and he did. But let's look at his prayer. Now, first of all, before we look at his prayer, whose idea was it for Jonah to run? It was Jonah's. Whose idea was it to get away from God? It was Jonah's. Look at his prayer, though. Chapter 2, verse 1. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep. Whose idea was it for Jonah to go into the water? It was Jonah's. He told the manners, throw me in the sea. What did he say? God, you threw me in the sea. <laughs> Is Jonah getting it yet? I mean, still, in the belly of the fish three days, he's still not quite getting it. He's saying, okay, God, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All of your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Wait, 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 wait. Wasn't that Jonah's plan to begin with? To be out of God's sight? But now he's saying, I've been driven away from your sight. So Jonah's still not quite getting it. Yeah, there, there, there's probably a little bit of a whine in the prayer. 
you know, my grandfather would say, you want a little cheese with that wine? You know, because, you know, he, it's there. I mean, you, you look at it. Jonah's response is so much like our own. When I sin and there's consequences, I'm looking for somebody else to blame. You ever blame shifted? Everybody do this. Because if you've sinned, you've blame shifted. And everybody here has sinned, so you blame shifted. Blame shifting took place immediately after the first sin. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, and God showed up, and he, he turned to Adam and he said, what have you done? Adam said, you made her. You gave her to me, and she caused me to sin. God turned to Eve, and Eve said, you made the serpent, he caused me to sin. Blame shifting was tried then, it didn't work. Still doesn't work, didn't work for Jonah either. God still, even though Jonah's still not getting it, and he's still blaming, and he's still whining about being in the belly of the fish, God's not through with him, and God is still drawing him into his plan of redemption, not just for the mariners that probably already are home by this point because of the calm sea, and they're home. But he's using this, his design, and Jonah's being drawn into God's plan still. But let's consider Jonah's situation. Now, if you have a real weak constitution, that's where you want to plug, might want to plug your ears. It's not going to get real gross, but okay. He's in the belly of a large fish. Seaweed is wrapped around his head. He is sloshing around inside a cold, mucus-lined bag. Okay. There's no handholds. There's no foothold. Every move the fish makes, Jonah's trying to ride himself. There's no way to sit up. There's no way to stand up. He is absolutely at the mercy of wherever this fish wants to go. And even if the fish goes down and just settles on the bottom, I don't know if you've ever been in a bucket of slime. Not everybody has that opportunity. You know, try it sometime. Not inside the fish, but you, know, you, you, you get into something that's real greasy and you just you can't get a hold of anything. You know, maybe if you're, if you're doing something in the kitchen with a lot of Crisco and you try to pick up something that squirts out of your hand, that's where Jonah was. Completely dark. I mean the darkest dark. We don't know how deep he was. He may have had a ruptured eardrum. I'm a scuba diver. If you go down 30 feet, you're under twice as much pressure than you are at the surface. And your ears compress. So you've got I mean, to do all kinds of stuff to equalize. But we don't know where he was. We don't know how deep he was. But inside a fish, it was completely dark. He didn't have a, cell, he didn't have a light on his cell phone he could turn on. Okay. He didn't have a big lighter. He didn't have any of those things. There were no strike anywhere matches. I don't know, it's strike inside a mucus bag anyway. anyway so. so there was no light. He had no way to know what his orientation was, where he was. He was swimming in gastric juices, burning his skin, burning his nose, burning his eyes, tasting it. Yeah. That's when Kinder said, more sense enough. Okay. 
In this circumstance, what was the result? After three days of that, Jonah finally prays to God. And as he's praying, we see in verse 9, even though he's blame-shifted, he's done some other stuff in here, verse 9 he says, I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. Jonah's getting it. It took him a while to get there through his prayer. He blamed God for casting him into the deep. He said he's been driven away from the face of God. He doesn't understand all of this. He's not really taking responsibility. But then he lands in verse 9, and he says, I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will repay. He says, salvation belongs to the Lord. He finally confesses that the only hope he's got is in God. God's response, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out on dry land. This then is the New Testament story of redemption. We see that Jonah in this circumstance is a Christ-like figure, a very shadowy picture of Christ, but a picture of Christ nonetheless. And that salvation comes from God. We see the we see the Jesus in this, and we see the plan of redemption being played out through the life and circumstance of a man of the Old Testament. How, do, how does that play out in Greenville, Texas? What do, we, what do we do with this? Well, I think we can ask ourselves three questions. So I'm going to ask those questions to you tonight. If we started at 10 after 7, or at 10 after 6, do I get to go till 10 after 7? I got to, yeah, okay. I'm, I'm going to try to wrap it up quick. The first question is, what is my Nineveh? What is the call that God has given you that you don't want to do? What could be a Nineveh? What might God call you to do that you just don't want to do? Hmm? I didn't hear you. Yeah, speak, uh, to, to speak to somebody that you don't want to speak to. Maybe it's a co-worker that's just mean and nasty. You know, and they're doing everything they can to get you fired. Every time something happens, you get blamed for it by this other person. Or maybe that person creates situations and puts your name on it. Would you want to speak to that person about God? Maybe God called you to speak to that person. Would you want to? Probably not. That could be your Nineveh. Your Nineveh could be anything that God called you to do that you just really would rather not do. And so then you get busy doing other things. The next question is, what is your ship? Once you identify what your Nineveh is, then you have to ask yourself, okay, what is my ship? What's my way of escape? Your way of escape may be a job. Staying so busy at a task that you don't have time to do something else. Maybe your ship is your family. That you, you so engross yourself in your family that nothing else matters and you ignore God. 
by doing those things. Now keep in mind, is a job a good thing? Everybody do this. Okay, is family a good thing? Everybody do this. Okay, so it's not about the circumstance that you find yourself in, it's about your heart set. Doing a good job, and, and, and I know guys that, that, that work down here at this plant that work 197 hours a week. I mean, you know, and they're, they're doing that, they're providing for their family, and God has blessed them with that. If their heart attitude is about running away and just pouring themselves into that so they don't have to do what God's called them to do, then that's a, that, that's a, that's a ship of escape. If they're doing it with the right heart set and the right attitude, then they're being obedient to God. If someone's pouring themselves into their family just so they won't have to think about this thing over here, and it's a good thing I'm doing things for my family, I'm taking care of my family, my children, I'm doing all this, and I'm providing, I'm loving, we're going places, and I heard a, one of my former pastors one time said, Satan can use good things to keep you from doing God's best. So again, it's about heart attitude. It's not about the activity. It's not about, it's not about the action. But what is your heart? So the ship can be anything, and it can look good. But if your heart is to get away from God, that's a ship of escape. Then ask yourself this third question. What is my very large fish that swallows me whole? Again, it could be a job. It could be family. It could be any other activity that takes you away from God, but it eventually will be a pit. Just like Jonah was in that mucus line bag for three days, you may find yourself in the bottom of a pit. And the pit has slick sides. And it's deep. And and I, if you're, I mean, I'm 6'1", and I've got an extremely long reach. I've, I've got about four inches of reach longer than what I should. God just made me that way. So I can reach up a little, you know, a little higher. But if I'm, if I'm six feet, and I've got a three and a half, you know, a, a three-foot reach, and I can reach nine feet, I really can't. But I'm just saying that. So the pit only has to be nine and a half feet deep. And I can't reach the edge. I'm stuck. So it doesn't matter how deep the pit is, if you can't reach the top, you're in the bottom of the pit. And you have to rely on someone else to get you out. Sometimes God will allow us to get into a pit so that the only way we have to look is up. And when we focus our attention on God, then there, there may be deliverance. If it's part of God's design, there will be deliverance. And that's, what Jonah, that's where Jonah was, in the belly of the fish for three days, sloshing around, and he finally calls out to God. In the last of his prayer, he confesses salvation belongs to the Lord, and immediately the fish vomited Jonah out on dry land. Jonah experienced God's salvation. He experienced his mercy. He experienced his grace. So this week, as you think about this, and I encourage you to, to go back and read through the first two chapters of Jonah again. You can go ahead and read three and four too for next week. You'll be, be prepared for that. But I want you to ask yourself those three questions. I want you to ask yourself those, ser those three questions very seriously. What is my Nineveh? 
What is my ship? What is my very large fish? As God reveals that to you, respond as Jonah did. Confess that God is the God of salvation and move in obedience toward God. Now, something to think about for next week, and then I'm going to stop, and we're going to close with prayer. But I've got, a, I've got a good friend who loves to fish. And he asked me one time, he said, Morris, do you fish much? And I was like, man, I grew up in West Texas. <laughs> you know, in Fort Stockton, there was no water. You know, I played with rattlesnakes and lizards, uh, literally. Um, never got bit by a snake. Lizard, yes, but anyway. I said, there wasn't any place to fish. And he said, well, when, when, when I fish sometimes, he said, every once in a while this happens, yeah, he said, I catch a big mouth bass. And he said, it'll be a big lunker, you know. And he said, and then I'm processing it and getting it ready to fry. He said, I cut it open. Sometimes there's a little fish inside the belly of the big fish. And he said, you know what condition that fish is in? And I was like, I have no clue. I can tell you about deer, you know, but not about fish. And he said, anything that's in the belly of a fish for an extended period of time before it's completely digested turns snow white. All the color is bleached out. Patrick fishes. Have you ever seen that, Patrick? Get a, a little fish on the inside. Is it white? I've seen it since then. It really does. Think about Jonah. He's in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. When he gets vomited out on the land, what do you think he's going to look like? Well, he's going to be slimy for, for one thing, but he's going to be bleached out completely white. When he walks into the city of Nineveh, we're going to talk about this next week. When he walks in and he's proclaiming God's judgment against the city of Nineveh, something about Jonah gets their attention. Don't you think somebody that's snow white walking into town would get everybody's head? It's like, whoa, dude. You know. Um, interesting little bit of information there. Think about that. Let's pray. Father, we do bow before you and we thank you for your presence here in this place tonight. Father, you are here not because of who we are. You are here because of who you are. Father, thank you for this study tonight, for the opportunity that we've had to look into your word and to see your salvation, your redemption, your grace and your mercy being played out in the lives of people in an Old Testament story. Father, your redemption and your grace and mercy is just as real then as it is today in our lives. Your grace and mercy is not just about this side of the cross. It was pre-cross also. Father, we thank you for that. We give you honor and glory. And Father, I pray that you help us glorify you and praise you, not only for who you are, not only for what you do, but who Jesus is for us, in us, and for your glory and honor. Father, I pray that you would go with us now from this place, that you would bless every family in a very special way tonight. Father, help us through this week give testimony as Jonah gave testimony of who our God is and who you are, creator of the sea and the dry land, worthy of praise and honor. Father, it's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen.